This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash view. Welcome back, everybody, to part two of our special appearance at the View NYC meetup. Last week, we talked about the origins of Enjoy the View and the ins and outs of running the podcast. In this week's episode, we will be featuring the Q&A portion of the meetup where we answered questions from the audience. Enjoy. So we had one question that was pre-submitted by Roman, and he wanted to know what your impressions are of Beat and BeatPress. And it looks like we also had a couple of other questions like that in the Slack chat. Yeah, so I'll take the VPress question. Yeah, so this is basically sort of like a new idea that Evan sort of came up with recently. Uh, basically, think of Vite as like, I wouldn't say it's definitely not a replacement for Webpack, but it's just like a sort of like, think of it like a different bundler that allows you to like instantly like, it makes like loading things so much faster. That's basically the TLDR of it. There's a lot of internal like philosophical stuff that goes on with Vite. But again, I am definitely not the best person to answer this. This is be a great little lead in. Uh, we actually will have Evan on the show, so you know, tune in for that. I think it'll probably that episode will probably be out in a in a few weeks, so you'll get all the insight on Beat and Beatpress. Oh, and so, oh, sorry to be clear, Beatpress would be Viewpress, which is basically like a Markdown generates the renderer, and then um, but that built on Vite. So that's what Beatpress is. Speaking of Beatpress. Alan asks, since Nuxt and the content module is stable, what kind of Markdown editor do you suggest? All right, I'll start this one too. I actually did play around with the Nuxt content module this past weekend. And actually, I had a really, really good time playing around with it. There are some aspects that I found still weren't as intuitive. So ViewPress, for example, what it does give you is like built-in search and those sort of things that you have to do very basically no work at all for it to be up and running. So in that regard, I think ViewPress still has a bit of a leg up. But um, if you are looking to build any sort of like application and then use like Markdown to ingest content and then like do more dynamic things with it, Next Content is super promising. So I definitely like it a lot and will be uh, planning to use it for a, a number of different projects. Speaking of projects you're working on, what projects do you think are best for Gridsum? And what's the most interactive type of site you might make with Gridsum is Andrew's question. I think Gridsum is, is really great for content-driven sites. So if you're going to be producing a lot of new content all the time, I, I think Gridsum really shines there. That's its niche. Well, our site is actually run on Gridsum right now. So if you want to just check out how our site's built, if you just go to github.com slash enjoy the view slash website, I believe, you can look at the repo there. And so we've been playing around with it. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So for, and for those who aren't familiar, Gridsum is the view version of Gatsby, which I imagine you might have heard a lot about in the React community. So yeah, Grissom is the view counterpart. I would say it's a little simplistic to call it the view version of Gatsby. Like it, it serves the, the, the same purpose, but it is a different product. Like it's not just trying to copy Gatsby. Fair enough. Yes, that is an important distinction. And it's not run by the Gatsby team either. It is a separate yeah. team. So another question from Andrew, which I believe is, wait, is it question three? It might be question three. So it might be time for our promised Batman voice reveal. Andrew asked for a progressive web app or PWA that would be largely used on a phone. How would you make the decision between making a view app versus a Nuxt app? Well, one nice thing about Nuxt <laughs> is that 
it gives you a lot of a lot of opinions. It's very opinionated. You don't have to make a lot of decisions. That's usually a, a Nux way to do something. And when you're looking out in the night, staying vigilant because you're Batman, that can be really important. It gives you the freedom to focus on what your app actually needs to do. But when you want the full freedom to build your app however you want, having a more generic view app can be really helpful. Does that answer your question? And was it worth the wait? I mean, I was definitely expecting Michael Keaton Batman, to be honest. No, I'm kidding, but <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, You're welcome anytime. So following up with, with building things, Alan had a question about what's your take on Vite and will we have a future where build times will be much lower? Yeah, so I'll continue on that one. I think I have the most exposure to it. So yeah, again, Vite would not, at least as far as my understanding so far, don't think of it as a web pack replacement. It should actually help with, as far as like local development, at least from the conversations I've seen, it will, like if you're used to like, if you're using Nuxt or ViewPress and it takes like a few seconds for things to like load because it's importing stuff, Vite is just an alternative way to make that almost basically like within milliseconds, things are changing and stuff. So it should improve our workflow, but I don't see it as like, yeah, I guess, to be honest, I, I'm curious to see where it goes. But again, we'll have a special episode with Evan to talk all about that. So definitely check out the podcast when the episode's released. It should be like the episode after this one, just FYI. So whenever you see this one released, it's almost time. <laughs> okay, next question. Have any of you guys used GraphQL with real projects? What do you guys think of it? And what's the tech stack that's around it? I really like to use Apollo with Vue. And there's a Vue Apollo module too. For those who don't know, what is Apollo? It, it helps you use GraphQL. It's, it's, uh, it's, that's overly simplistic, but yeah, you can check it out. I don't remember like the, the, their formal description, but it makes it easier to use GraphQL. Definitely. It's like and an alternative a to UX, right? Yeah, it, 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 like, it can also it. be, and it can also like, live alongside UX. Mm-hmm. It basically helps you manage like the GraphQL interaction as far as like updates. But it's, sort of yeah, it's really focused on fetching data from APIs, like especially from, from GraphQL APIs, you know, whereas, whereas Vuex is more like general purpose state management. I know for me, um, as far as tech stack, when I was back at Politico, we did a GraphQL experiment and like that was with like a whole Java app and everything. And so it was fairly a large spike as, as far as the team goes. And so I personally really did enjoy my time with GraphQL because again, I think for those that are sort of newer to it, basically it allows you to really compose the API requests that you want so that you don't just get a dump data dump from the backend. And every time you want something new, you have to like ask for a new endpoint. And so from that, it was really empowering as a uh, front-end developer. But I know that some of the sort of backend developers felt like they had to do a lot to contort around the schemas that sort of GraphQL requires in order to make it basically like composable. So, but over as a front-end developer, I just certainly love the experience. And if it, anyone has any specific questions about GraphQL, I know Natalia Tepulhina on the core team, she does done a lot of talks on it and super um, knowledgeable of it. Yeah, she has one from uh, the most recent ViewConf US too, right? Yes, I was there. <laughs> she did it. <laughs> ben was running around because he was hosting. It's okay. <laughs> that dinosaur suit was hot. <laughs> suit? I thought you were really transforming this whole time. <laughs> it's Animorphs. Oh so, my gosh, I love that series. <laughs> that, that's a throwback and a half. Yeah. If anyone wants to geek out about Animorphs, just tweet at me. 
at Gloomy Lumi. I was really hoping that one would not be that joke because please don't. I feel like Animorphs was one of those books that had like the the embossed covers or whatever. I'm pretty sure that's not the exact right term, but where like the cover was slightly 3D. And that's something you don't get Mm -hmm. with people. Kind of sad. The face would transform Um, when you sped it through in the little corner. They would transform. Oh, nice. I didn't know that. That is actually kind of cool. Yeah. Flipbook animation. Yeah, also like old videos and DVDs just have those little Easter eggs. But going back to what you were saying about composing requests, does that mean like, because I feel like composing is a word that I see thrown around so often, usually in the context of everybody is using composing wrong. So (laughs) I just want to check in, like, does that mean like, here's the structure of the data, like the way that I want the data structured or like, here's the shape I expect it to have when it comes back to me? Yeah, exactly. So basically imagine if you're requesting like a library API and you're getting from a book, you can be like, okay, from the book, I only want the author name and I want like the publisher. That's all I want. Whereas like in a traditional API, it probably comes with a lot more information regarding publish date and then like various characters in it or whatnot. Like you can basically pick and choose what you want and then be like, yeah, I only want the books to return this, but I want like, you know, the librarians to return this other thing. Doesn't it allow you to compose from, say, multiple endpoints? So, like, let's say you have like a legacy API and then you have like your new hotness. It can do the work for you to make everything pretty. I don't know. That's just what I've heard. I don't actually know. <laughs> yeah. I think when the back end developers can successfully like make the schemas work together, it's, yeah, you should be able to basically pick and choose. So, think of it like a middleware between like the data and like the front end application. And then you, you choose and then like and assemble it together as you would want so you don't, yeah. So basically so it's like one of those fancy Lego sets. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So basically I could be like, give me all of the characters from the original Harry Potter series, or give me all of the characters from the new series, or give me all of them across both series, because those were in like separate stores. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, Graphio also lets you like filter down. So if you're like, oh, fetch all the Harry Potter books, and then within that data set, like filter down these things. That is one of those ways that you can basically like constrain data sets. And yeah, coming from, I think most of us come from more traditional programming where we're used to backend just determining what our APIs are. It can be very empowering in that regard. So it's a lot of fun to work with because of that. So it's like SQL for the front end. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it is Sorry. a query language. I was just like, oh God, joins. <laughs> Aggregates, left join, yeah, inner join. Yeah, I'd say it's not as complex. It is more intuitive, at least I felt. And when the backend yeah, developers like do documentation, like that's what's really cool is you can actually look at the schema and it'll tell you like types and stuff and what you expect. And it, it's actually when it's documented well, it's really quite lovely. Ringo, I feel like you've done some playing around with GraphQL, right? Do you think this is also reflective of your experience? Yeah, our company experimented with GraphQL a little bit. And um, I think what Ben said was pretty fun. Yeah, just curious though, have anyone experimented with the real-time like GraphQL APIs? I wish. Yeah, that I, <laughs> that I haven't done yet. I know Apollo pretty much has that built in for you. So that would be a good bet if you wanted to do real-time with GraphQL. Yeah, second that. I know a thing or two about real-time, so <laughs> just not GraphQL. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. I think we have a thing or two about real time, but now that we're all locked indoors, it's lost all meaning. Huge. <laughs> and time isn't real, so... Uh... Time is a construct. 
So Andrew asked what it's like being on the Vue.js core team, what the team's workflows are like, how often the team meets. Tell us everything, Ben. <laughs> I guess I guess I'll take this one on. <laughs> being on the Vue core team, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun just to sort of be involved in a lot of the discussions. But simultaneously, as you can imagine, it can be a, a lot a bit stressful sometimes and overwhelming as you realize the things like Vue 3 coming out, there's a lot to prepare for. You know, concerns over questions and those things. And so there's a lot of different projects within the Vue ecosystem. And so actually, probably my biggest disclaimer I should I need to try to pervade out is that what most people don't realize is that people on the Vue core team still have nine to five jobs. <laughs> I think I've actually I've had a number of people be like, oh yeah, what's it like to work for Evan? And it's not it's not quite that at all. It's not like we're salaried employees or anything. So people are still doing this as passion projects. But you know the individual libraries like Vue Router, UX, these are managed by um, there are certain team leads that help with those things. And as far as like how often the team meets, yeah, the team has started actually started to meet about twice a month these days. We try to have like a biweekly meeting just to see how everyone's doing, catch up, and get updates from each other. So yeah, that's been nice. And workflow, yeah, workflow is dependent on the team, but overall we try to keep in touch and. Uh, yeah, keeping communication just to make sure everyone's on the same page with releases and those things. Yeah, one thing Damian mentioned is there's uh, they started doing video chats with the whole team that he found helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, one of those things that is may not be immediately apparent is that the View team is actually very international. Like, I think as far as like U.S. based members, I think there's three of us tops, and I think everyone else is either based in like Europe, Asia. And so it's really cool just to have that spread across the world and to get different, not only cultures, but takes on things. Yeah. Last I counted, the Vue team had at least, had people from at least 12 different countries and at least nine different time zones. So it is truly the team that never sleeps. (laughs) It'd be hard to find times to meet. It is a little tricky. But yeah, everyone is everyone's super passionate, and it's great to see people from like Japan joining in. When I know it's it's late for them when they join, usually we meet in the morning, at least here in the U.S. Eastern Time. I thought being a developer meant that you didn't have to wake up in the morning, but okay. <laughs> it's not morning somewhere. Um, okay, so as Oswaldo has a question, he said, when writing software, what is the best way to identify the design pattern that works best for your application? And uh, how do you go about coming up with the best way to structure the projects and uh, scaling it in the future? I'll take this one. View Enterprise Boilerplate. That is all. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Chris probably has some thoughts. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm technically the author of View Enterprise Boilerplate. It works for me. Basically, that's why I created it, you know, from my own projects where I have these problems. But I mean, in general, when I'm writing software, you want to plan for the project being around for a long time. And on most projects, there's not a really, really well-defined problem at the beginning. You know, you're responding to, you know, things that clients want and you're, you're finding like your product market fit. And so requirements are pretty drastically changing over time. And so you're 100% always going to make some design decisions that you're going to regret later because all code is compromised. It's like there is no perfect code that will just like, work for everything forever. That's just, that just doesn't exist. And so it's really important to use patterns that are going to be easy to throw away later if you later decide that they're not working for you. You know, if you have things like 
really, really tightly integrated so that like whenever you change something, you have to change it in like, you know, 50 different places in your application. That's going to be a huge pain to refactor. And so that's, that's one recommendation. And one, one really simple example of that pattern is whenever I use a, a third-party module, like a third-party component, I always wrap it in my own component in order to control the interface that I want to use and to make it so much simpler to refactor away to a different component if I choose to. So for example, if I have like a base icon component and inside my base icon component, I'm using the font awesome icon component, you know, from font awesome, you know, that can be really useful because then I don't have to like invent all my own icons when I want to, I can still like define some custom icons and, you know, add those as, as another option for when I, I don't want to use font awesome. And if I decide I want to use something different than font awesome, I can do that too. And I don't have to change a bunch of code. I only have to change one file, one component, which makes my life a lot easier. And like a lot of people ask too, they'll show me a component and they'll say like, is this okay? Is this a good idea? Or something else in your application? And usually the first question I ask is like, why are you having problems with it? And a lot of times people aren't. A lot of times it's working really great for them, but it doesn't feel like a best practice for some reason. Like it feels like maybe they shouldn't be doing it or or maybe they shouldn't be using this feature in this way, but they're not having any problems. And in those cases, I I almost always tell them unless like there's something that I know they're going to have problems with later, which is is pretty rare actually. I'll say it, it sounds like it's working great. So there's no need to change it right now. You know, as long as it's not something that's going to be like really, really hard and or especially practically impossible to move away from later. That's, that's my practical advice. I hope that answers the question. I will just say from experience and back up really what Chris said, everything's going to be a compromise. You're going to make mistakes. There, You will make regrettable decisions about your structure, but I would say that the one thing I keep in mind whenever I'm trying to structure some new part of the app or in, introduce some new library is just make sure that things are decoupled, like decoupling, decoupling, decoupling. Cause yeah, you want, you want parts that are easily removed and replaced. So as long as you stick to that idea, you'll probably be okay. You may have to refactor and honestly you should refactor from time to time, but I think you'll be okay. Yeah. I, I guess w- one other personal philosophy of mine is to like generally try to stay away from anything that feels kind of magical where just from looking at the component or looking at the file, like whatever file you're in, you know, there seems to be some magic going on and there's no way to trace where it's coming from. And, and that can be, that can be really tempting sometimes to have like, you know, some like magic globals that, that exist somewhere. And then you're not sure like where to find them or where they came from or things that are like automatically injected into some components. You know, those can be sometimes useful patterns, but uh, they're always dangerous. Like they, they always, carry the risk of having people look at that file and not be sure like why this thing is happening. Yeah. Don't do that. I once had an app that was entirely based on polluting the global scope and it was a nightmare <laughs> and we rewrote it in view and it is no longer a nightmare. Yeah. I feel like every time we have these conversations, like my past memories of working with event bus just like gets my heart pounding and I'm like, no. Yeah, that's one of those few patterns that I'll just say, like, don't do it because it's so hard to keep track of, like, where events are coming from and how state changes. Like, UX makes that a lot easier with the dev tools. 
Yeah, I think also with regards to like wrapping things, like not just components, but also with modules, Sarah Dayong talked about that a little bit more in depth on a recent podcast episode, uh, but she's been on more than one. So you may have to listen to all of them to find out which. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But you should because she's amazing. With over 300 tools and warehouses, Segment connects your stack with one API and can get you up and running faster with our historical data replay feature. Segment is a customer data platform that helps companies harness first-party customer data. Their platform democratizes access to reliable data for all teams and offers a complete toolkit to standardize data collection, unify user records, and route customer data into any system where it's needed. More than 20,000 companies like Intuit, Hinge, Instacart, and Levi's use Segment to make real-time decisions, accelerate growth, and deliver compelling user experiences. For more information, visit Segment.com. In terms of patterns, though, like there's the metaphor of like finding the elephant or whatever it is in the marble, right? So when you're approaching an app, do you have any ways that you feel out whether this is a situation where you're like, okay, I know that I should apply this pattern in advance. Like, I'm pretty sure that's a good idea versus like, I'm going to just work on it and let a pattern, if there is one surface on its own. I feel like that's one of those things that like, that's really sort of the, the, the distinction between, you know, a more junior developer and a more senior developer. That's one of those things that you learn through experience. You learn to see the pattern where it is. And maybe at first, yeah, you have to sort of get into the thick of it before you start to see the pattern. But eventually you'll start to see the pattern when you hear the requirements. So yeah, just keep doing it, keep practicing and you'll get there. And I'd also say there are a lot of times, like even after having a lot of experience and working on like more different kinds of applications than most people see in a lifetime, I still like am sometimes wary of creating a pattern before I have a good idea of what the problem is. And I feel like the problem is kind of stabilized. So there are a lot of cases where I'll prefer a little bit of duplication over the wrong abstraction because choosing the wrong abstraction can be, can be really expensive. And so even if things don't feel optimal, if I still feel like they're, they're really in like a changeable state or I, I, don't really under, I don't fully understand the problem that we're trying to solve and I'm still getting hang on like what the compromises are going to be, I'll stick with something that will be easy to refactor rather than something that that I think will like make my life a lot easier, but also really restricts what we can do in the future. Hope that makes sense. Basically just chill out, keep it loose. <laughs> so it sounds like when you first start working on a problem, it's like in a lot of flux and you have to like take a stab at it first and let everything kind of the dust settle before you take a step back and be like, okay, this is a cleaner way to do something. Yeah. And I think it's tempting, especially, I mean, it, you know, for people who, like have computer science degrees. I'm so sorry you wasted all that money. But one of the only programming like <laughs> tips that they, they generally like ram into your head is don't repeat yourself, which is like one of, one of the least of my problems when I'm programming. I'd so much rather people repeat themselves than do all these other things that are going to cause so much more pain. And so, so sometimes like it is really okay for you to just repeat yourself a little bit when you're still defining the problem. And you can document like where you're repeating yourself too. It'll be... Again, like so much cheaper and so much less of a headache than trying to figure out the, the, the right abstraction when you still don't really understand the problem and the problem is still in flux. And sometimes the not optimal pattern will still work. So if you see yeah. that it will work, do it. Yeah, it's sort of strategic technical debt. That, that's my and, life. Thank you, Ethan. 
that's a really good way to phrase it. <laughs> yeah. And I think of it as like, I, I know I'm going into debt now, but I know it'll be easy to pay off and versus like doing something where I'm not sure if I'll owe money later, but if I do, it'll be a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Also, you know, it's sort of, of like, it's sort of like if someone gives me like, like a free yacht or something like that. It's just like, what, what are there strings attached? Like what's going on? I don't know you. What is going on here? Be very careful in that situation. <laughs> yeah. Earlier when we were talking about like podcast tips, I wasn't really sure if this, this applied, but I thought of this experiment that one of my professors used to really like to share about some pottery class. I think Sarah Jasner also tweeted about this. So you can probably find it there where like basically this teacher divided their sculpture class into two sections and he had one section make as many pots as possible. They didn't have to look good or be functional or anything. Their only goal was to have the highest number of pots. And then the other group's goal was to make like one perfect pot. And so I feel like that kind of reminds me of the situation we're talking about now, where if you worry too much about pre-optimization, you're potentially missing out on all of that experience you can build up to make you better just in general at recognizing and building pots. Yeah. I mean, they say done is better than perfect. I think that's not always the case, but a lot of times it probably is. Yeah. It's sort of like, if you're not failing, you're not learning. So honestly, choose a bad pattern from time to time, just to see exactly how badly it can go. Maybe not like in a a production app, but you know, (laughs) side project, (laughs) but also you may find that, you know, applying a pattern that you really thought would never work works pretty well. So yeah, I like that. Plus nobody's perfect except for Ben. So like just give up on perfect. Yeah, Ben's perfect. (laughs) So last question from Alan, for what kinds of projects would you suggest using TypeScript? Is it only for big projects or can you also use it for smaller projects? You can use it for anything. (laughs) I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, (laughs) I would say any data heavy application is a good candidate, but also it depends on your team as well. Does your team have the, the time up front to put in the learning curve? Like say, if people aren't familiar with it, is it really that important that types be strict or is, are things honestly a little loosey goosey? If you have a heavy dependency on your API, that's a good candidate for TypeScript, especially if you can do an open API spec and just export that to make sure everything always matches up. But you can use it on anything. I used it on a small crappy project. It sucked. (laughs) It was very (laughs) redundant for something that really didn't need it, but it's a good way to experiment with it at least. I have really mixed feelings about, about TypeScript. I really, really, really like it for libraries where there's a really well-defined problem and you know, it's not going to like vastly change over time. And you, like you don't have like a really tight deadline like you do with an application, like a product a lot of times. So for, for applications, the, the story is a little different. Sometimes it can be really, really useful. But like Arya was saying, if, if your team doesn't have the time to really like learn TypeScript and learn how to program an application that uses TypeScript, because the, the really dynamic patterns that a lot of people are used to in JavaScript sometimes just don't work in a strongly typed language. Like you'll, you'll be fighting the type system a lot uh, with some of those patterns. Just any, everything. (laughs) Sorry. Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. And so sometimes like you, you lose some of the, some of the advantages of TypeScript. 
you know, by trying to use those dynamic patterns or spending a lot of time just trying to make the type system happy. So that can be, that can be really tough. I've seen teams who have previous experience with a strongly typed language like C Sharp or Java be really, really successful. And it's really intuitive to them because they're already using these patterns anyway in their programming. But for people who don't have that experience, I, I think you can often expect, especially in an application, you know, where the requirements are changing constantly over time, you can expect things to get worse before they get better. And that may or may not be okay. And they may be, if you don't have any guidance, if you have like at least someone on the team who has more experience with strongly typed languages, they may be worse for a very long time before they get better, unfortunately, which may also put you in a lot of technical debt. There's one other thing, like a lot of people who pick up TypeScript can spend a lot of time trying to make the type system happy when almost no bugs are going to be, in my experience, from like poor typing. Like you're, you're, you're going to catch very few bugs with that. Like the, the most complex things you'll still need to write unit tests for or end-to-end -end tests. So like it's no substitute for writing tests. And in my experience, writing tests gives you way more, like way more advantage than TypeScript for the purpose of, for the purpose of preventing bugs, like time that you spend on it. Oh, and I guess I do have one other thing. A lot of times when people adopt TypeScript, what they really want is just like, oh, I, I want like really cool IntelliSense for like complex objects that I'm working with, which by the way, if you just use like JS doc or something like that in some editors, like Visual Studio Code, if you just sprinkle in JS doc comments where you want them, you can get the exact same IntelliSense that you would get with TypeScript. And so like, you don't have to be converting your entire project to TypeScript to take advantage of some of that IntelliSense. And your entire team doesn't know how, have to know how to use TypeScript. In fact, they don't even have to know how to use JS doc. You can just drop some of those, some of the, like have one person who knows it, drop some of those comments in somewhere and then everybody else can take advantage of that as long as they're using an editor like Visual Studio Code that supports that feature. So once again, we're back to like have a bet on your team to do all the heavy lifting. <laughs> uh, but yeah, lately I've been finding myself wondering if a lot of the times when devs are thinking, oh, if only I had TypeScript on this project, like 90% of my problems would be gone. If they're really thinking like, the issue is types when it's actually more like naming or a lack of documentation or something like that. So I'm curious, Chris, uh, from your experience, looking at so many different view apps, like in addition to testing, what other kinds of maybe misdiagnoses is not the right word, but just like situations you've seen where a team's instinct was to go with TypeScript, but maybe they could have traversed that concern some other way that would have been a more effective use of their time. Yeah. Besides testing, yeah, documentation, like, like you said, just naming things well, because if you still have the same terrible names, it, it doesn't matter if you know that it's a string because you still don't know what it is <laughs> fundamentally. Like this is the name, the name of what? <laughs> like if you have a, like a book with a, with a title and then a book with like a name, like, is this the name of the author? Is this the name of like the main character? Is this the name of the publisher? Like, what is going on here? You know, you still have a poorly defined name. It doesn't help you that you know it, it's a string. And there really aren't a lot of cases where people are putting in a number for name and you're gonna be like, oh gosh, oh, we could have caught that error. I mean, do you have any recommendations or resources on how people can get better at naming? Because I know that's like one of the means of programming, right? Is like the two hard things are 
naming off by one errors and make a joke work. Yeah, so I, I'd say, <laughs> like, show it to other people. And if they can explain to you what it is, like, without any explanation and without seeing the context of where you've defined it, just where you're using it, then you're, you're good. Because if the other people on your team understand it, then you're fine. I'd say my biggest tip for naming is don't be afraid of long names. Yeah. Big <laughs> because mm-hmm. like I will say early on, you know, like when I was, you know, just starting out, I was like, oh, I want it to look clean. So I'm going to use some abbreviations in there. Now I'm just like full sentences as variable names because it's real clear. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, totally. And like autocomplete solves that problem for you. Exactly. And you can have snippets that do the same thing. Yeah. It's it, like it's so much easier to solve the problem of like having to type too much than it is to solve the problem of, I have no idea what this is. And don't use names like item. Item is basically thing. It's thing, but it sounds more technical. So we think it's okay. Or data. Element. Element. (laughs) I mean, element sometimes can be okay if it's like an actual HTML element and that context is clear. But like if you're using element outside of those contexts, I'd say. Element in like a a for each. (laughs) Yeah. Which is the default. But yeah, I prefer to, you know, call it the noun of whatever the list is of. Yeah, yeah, totally. What and other also don't do like one character names. Oh, or abbreviations that bugs me so much. Whenever I see an abbreviation, I just say don't do it. <laughs> EVT. What's that? <laughs> but yeah, one other comment on how to know when TypeScript is right for you. It might be at least a reasonable candidate if your backend is strongly typed because it's going to be a lot easier to infer those types from that. And so I personally have very strongly considered introducing TypeScript into my app because I actually have had problems where <laughs> there was a type mismatch between the backend and front end that was not caught and it caused bugs and it's happened more than once. And that's one of those things where test is never going to catch that. <laughs> Because the tests are going to assume that there's a certain structure to the model. And if that's not actually the case, test is still going to pass. Well, that's not actually always the case. Like one project that I use sometimes for, for doing this kind of work is Joy. And Joy is a, a library that you can use to assert uh, shape different objects in tests. Yeah, so, so you can assert that. But if your backend changed, your front-end test doesn't know that. <laughs> Oh, so you're talking about automatically creating the models. Yeah. Which oh, yeah, yeah. Is... I've, I've done that too. And you can do that with JS. Like you can have the automatically create the JS.comments or, or TypeScript if you want like the compiler to, to, to assert that. Rather yeah, than it's that. easy if you have a strongly And you can have it automatically uh, generate too. Yeah. But yeah, if you have a strongly typed backend, it's mm-hmm. generally pretty easy to export those to usable JS objects. Yeah. So. Or sorry, Agreed. TS objects, <laughs> interfaces. Yeah, I feel like also just going back to Chris's tip about like double checking your names against others. Twitter is also an easy way, or I guess a simple, quick way to get feedback from random strangers or somebody who knows nothing about your app, like a certain Twitter handle that I won't mention again because it's been mentioned to death. But yeah, does anybody else have any final thoughts to share before we move on to fix? I'll mention it. You can let us know at Gloomy Loomy. That's L-U-M-I. The <laughs> <laughs> awesome. part is I have yet to get a single message from any of those. Which I'm, I'm really disappointed that our listeners for. I'm a little disappointed too, but I'm also okay with it. So, What voice reveal do we get at five mentions? 
<laughs> I can do we'll the David Attenborough voice. <laughs> cool. And with that, it's time to move on to this week's picks. Ari, would you like to go first? Sure. I have one pick. It is a music pick. It is a, I think, 22-minute song. <laughs> so I feel like that's like five in one. <laughs> but the song is called Storm by Godspeed You Black Emperor. Part of the song was used in the Tables ad on Silicon Valley. But I swear, it, the song itself goes many different places. So don't judge it purely on that part if you are familiar with the Tables ad. And that is my pick. Awesome. How about you, Chris? So I've been watching episodes of Community sometimes in my downtime. I, I know I am super late to this party, but I am still in season one, but, but very much enjoying it. And my next pick is Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I've actually not started this book yet, but my wife Katie read it and really, really loved it. And we're going to read it together now. She has like told me about like different, different quotes and passages that, that she really enjoyed from it. Uh, and it, it just seems like a good book with a lot of wisdom. It's very it is a nonfiction book. And the next one is Miro, which is like a flow charting web app to help you make really beautiful flow charts. And I love flow charts. And it's really simple too. It has a, a really nice feature. Actually, I might have mentioned Miro before. I can't remember. It's also great for collaboration. Yeah, it's good for collaboration too. But I just like the flow charts. It's like, ah, so good. And my final pick for today is a podcast called We Have Concerns. They actually ended a while ago in case you used to listen to We Have Concerns. And then they came back because apparently like when you're not allowed to leave your house, it's really hard to find work as an actor. And so they decided to open the Patreon back up and start restart the podcast. <laughs> and I definitely recommend starting from the beginning because there are so many callbacks and inside jokes that develop over time. It's, it's two people just talking about different science news stories and doing like different improv sketches and just like fooling around and being silly uh, while talking about it. And it's, it's just a lot of fun. I enjoy hanging out with those people. Awesome. That sounds like a great time. How about you, Matt? Do you have any picks you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, there's this book I just finished called An Elegant Puzzle. It's a book about software management. And I recently became Mr. Manager to an intern. So I had to pick up real quick how to, how to help them out. Nice. How about you, Ringo? I have a game that I've been playing on my, on my phone called Sky. It's pretty fun. It's in the adventure game. If you guys have played Journey from PlayStation, it's from the same creator and it's pretty good. Very cool. Okay, Ben, this looks kind of familiar. What's your pick? Chris, I don't know if he chose Miro intentionally to troll me, um, but you would I'm never. pretty sure I had Whimsical in here first. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually totally didn't. Yeah. So, you know, with everyone being remote, open collaboration whiteboarding does are really important these days. So I actually really like Whimsical. I give Miro a, a little bit of a try, but I like Whimsical a lot because it actually allows you to combine like, your sticky noting plus your like flow charts, but then you can also wireframe on the same one and it gives you all these tools and it already has a kind of a set design language. And so Whimsical has been pretty nice. And so that is my pick for the week. Not to pull a Ben, but Matt's pick reminded me that another book on software management that I really like is The Manager's Path. Yeah, I think it's a pretty thorough and well-organized overview of what it means to be a manager in engineering. And 
I read it more so to get a better handle on like the norms of engineering management from the perspective of a manager. And even from that perspective, I think it was really great. And I started watching Lost in Space, which is, I believe, a Netflix original remake of the old show. And it's kind of a little bit slow paced, but it's like a a fun, not too intense sci-fi show if you like those kinds of things. Uh, Yeah, check it out. Thank you so much to our special guests, Ben, Chris, and Ari for joining us. Thank you to all of you for tuning in live and enjoy the view. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com view.